Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcie. Today's guest is Zach O'Malley Greenberg, who is the author of We Are All Musicians Now, which is a book that explores how musicians have led the way and influenced many of the trends that we now see in tech, media, entertainment, and elsewhere in society. Zach is releasing this book independently through Substack, which is a career change from what he had been doing before. Zach is most known by many people for a lot of the entertainment work that he did at Forbes. He was a senior entertainment editor there, and he led and created so much of the hip-hop and entertainment coverage that is now a staple for Forbes and what people see as Forbes's influence in culture and society now. Think about all the times that hip-hop artists are name-dropping Forbes lists or talking about where they stack up, where they rank. Zach was the one that was a catalyst for so much of that work, so much of the status and influence that Forbes has in that role. Zach was the one that was interviewing many of these artists. He's the one that had led so much of the work that went into the numbers like naming Jay-Z a billionaire, naming Kanye West a billionaire. And we see that continued with some of the announcements they've made recently with folks like Tyler Perry or with Rihanna and other entertainers and celebrities that have hit that billionaire status. On that note, Zach and I also talked about some of the ridiculous celebrity net worth calculations that are out there and how they appear in the first place. And then we made our own predictions on who we think will be the next billionaires to come through hip hop. Here's my conversation with Zach O'Malley Greenberg. Today's episode of the Trapital Podcast is brought to you by Mighty Networks. If you're a content creator or an entrepreneur, Building a community around your business is key, and you want to be able to bring it all together in one place, and Mighty Networks has you covered. It is your one-stop shop to bring your content, courses, events, all together in one place without integrating with other tools. Join successful creators like Lovey, Ajay Jones, Wall Street Trapper, and more. Go to MightyNetworks.com to start your 14-day free trial. So we got my guy, Zach O'Malley Greenberg, back on the podcast. He's the author of We Are All Musicians. And Zach, first off, welcome back. Not too many repeat guests, so I'm glad you can make it happen. And it's always great to talk to people again. And for you specifically, I mean, you've definitely made a few changes since we talked last time, but I feel like now is a good time to sit back and reflect on so much that you had done and accomplished at Forbes. I think Forbes in so many ways is now known almost primarily in a lot of people's eyes for the depth of its entertainment coverage. And so much of that started with you. So it'd be great to hear like what that was journey, what that journey was like and what it was like building that out over 15 plus years. Well, thanks, man. And great to be back here. Yeah. You know, so I, I made the jump over to Substack a little while ago, but the Forbes thing was, you know, it started out, and I should say, the Substack thing is both my kind of daily, you know, weekly writing, and I'm also serializing a book. As you mentioned, we, we are all musicians now, uh, so, so that's all over on Substack. But Forbes for me, it, it started when I was an intern in, in my college years. I mean, I got a like a note I saw on the, the college newspaper bulletin board, and it said interns wanted, and you know, I applied and I got the gig, and, and basically spent so long there, I realized that my career at Forbes was old enough to drive. So I thought it might be time for a change, but we can get into that a little later. But yeah, I mean, it started out that first summer I was at Forbes, you know, an editor came into my cubicle and she said, you're under 30. Do you like hip hop? And I said, I love hip hop. And she's like, I want you to 
helped me create the first ever list of the top earning rappers. And I was like, done, let's do it. And shortly thereafter, fast forward, I'm driving through the desert reporting some other story and on the radio comes the song. And it's like, I get money, I get money. Forbes, one, two, three. And I was like, whoa, what's going on here? And it was 50, Jay and Puff had all hopped on that, that 50 song and done this remix, the billionaire Forbes one, two, three remix. And, you know, that was back in, I believe it was 2007. And I got back to New York and all the editors were like, I think you're onto something here. <laughs> so shortly after that, the editor who had sort of assigned me to be a part of this left and she said, you need to make this your thing. And so I did. And that, that was kind of my, my MO, my sort of favorite thing I did at Forbes thing I was most proud of was building up this coverage of not only entertainment, but specifically hip hop. And, you know, I think that at the time there wasn't really any other major business publication that was treating hip hop seriously and, you know, sort of not as a fad. And, you know, I grew up in New York loving hip hop. And, you know, to me, it was never a fad. It was just what I grew up around. And the idea that there was no sort of serious business coverage of it to me was just ridiculous. So I kind of took it upon myself to build out our coverage and give hip hop the respect that it deserved. And not just as a, a musical genre, but as sort of like a, a cultural force to be reckoned with that from everything ranging from fashion to venture capital. And it's been so fun to cover the business of hip hop as a really big part of that coverage area at Forbes over the years. And, you know, I think hip hop responded in kind with all the shout outs of the Forbes list and this and that. So it's been super rewarding to do. And, um, you know, that's always going to be a key part of my coverage, you know, wherever I am. You mentioned the the billionaire remix for I Get Money. And I do remember that because that at least in my memory, was one of the first big shout outs I remember where Forbes got the name on the actual track list. What are some of those other like, pivotal moments or like those watershed moments you can remember of like, oh, like this is growing, this is growing? Because I'm sure that was the first one, but I'm sure there were others after that too. I think that another watershed moment really was Bruno Mars. You know, I want to be in the cover of Forbes magazine. And I think when that song came out, he was not big at all. And we weren't really sure whether it was Bruno or Travis McCoy, who was kind of going to be the, the one who got really big after that song. And we were like, Oh, cool. You know, Bruno Mars, a billionaire guy, but like, who is this guy? Uh, <laughs> and, but, you know, I think to me, it was Bruno who obviously eventually became this huge superstar, but he gets so many of his influences through hip hop and R and B and the idea of like that whatever it was that hip hop had seen in Forbes, he saw that he discovered it, I think, through the lens of listening to hip hop that then inspired him to write this big, basically advertisement for Forbes, which like talk about earned advertising. I mean, authentic endorsements. I mean, obviously that's not nothing. Forbes doesn't pay anybody to rap about it, but it, you know, I think that that kind of signaled kind of the groundwork that hip hop was laying and like, then it getting amplified out into like all these other audiences. Yeah, for sure. And I think after the work that you've done as well, I think we started to see more and more of these other websites that are talking about what celebrities net worth is and how much their valuation is. And I'm sure that you've seen a lot of these, I've seen a lot of these and you're like, there's no way that that number is accurate. Some of these numbers that are out there are crazy. 
But I know that the work that you did at Forbes was obviously very different than what a lot of these other websites did. So I'm curious from your perspective, where do you think that a lot of those other places may get some of these numbers? And what are some of the things that you did at Forbes to make sure that your numbers were as close to being not just accurate, but as close to being what you wanted to put out there? Yeah. I mean, a lot of those numbers floating around the internet, they got from me or my colleagues. And then a lot of them, you know, as far as I can tell, they just make up. So it's like a math class in high school, right? You can't just put the answer on the sheet. You need to show the work. And let's say that was how it always was at Forbes. Like, even though I was the one doing the valuations for the hip hop stuff, for the most part, I still had to get it past the billionaire's editor, right? If you're going to call Jay-Z a billionaire, you need to convince the billionaire's editor who also signs off on the number for Elon Musk and Bill Gates and Oprah. And yeah, you have to show your work. And so although you may not see all the work on that page of the magazine where it has the line that it says Jay-Z $1 billion, rest assured that you know deep in the, in the, the bowels of the Forbes billionaire uh, wealth database, there are pages and pages and pages and months and months and months of work on that Jay-Z number. So, you know, I mean, Jay-Z in particular, just to give you an idea of the work that goes into it, I spent more time showing the work, showing the proof of work for that billionaire valuation than I've spent on many cover stories I've written. It was months and months of going back and forth, of valuing every single company in his portfolio, of talking to sometimes three, four, five different industry analysts, booze analysts, when you're talking about Armand de Brignac, music analysts for the music stuff, Spotify analysts for the title stuff. And because with Jay, most of the companies are privately held and, and not, you know, he didn't until recently, um, you know, sell big chunks or, or most of, you know, his stakes in title or half of Armand de Brignac. You have to actually dig around and this isn't, it's shoe leather reporting. You've got to go and scrounge up the numbers and you have to get people to talk to you on background and then you find the revenue and then you compare that to a similar publicly traded company but there aren't exact comps because jay-z's champagne company was just champagne and like a lot of the publicly traded companies are champagne and other spirits or champagne and fashion or whatever so you know it's just a lot of that back and forth valuing of companies and figuring out what his percentage is and just a ton of reporting that goes into it. So long story short, that's why I get so annoyed when I see numbers out there that are just very clearly somebody making something up to put on a page because I know how much work goes into those numbers when I create them and when my colleagues at Forbes uh, would create them. It is really like uh, it's both an art and a science that something that takes a lot of time and care to get right. And with that Jay-Z example specifically, because you said so much was so much effort was put into making sure that top line number was set, was a lot of it more so just trying to get as precise as you could, or was it the broader aspect of can we verify that Jay-Z is a billionaire? Yeah, I mean, there's some point at which precision is impossible, right? Like I can't tell you to the dollar or to the hundred thousands of dollars or even to the million or even the tens of millions, like how much Jay-Z is worth. But when you're talking billionaires, you need to be accurate, let's say, to the hundreds of millions, or particularly when somebody's just becoming a billionaire, you really want to make sure that they're comfortably there, right? And you, you, what you really don't want to do is call somebody a billionaire when they're just kind of puffing themselves up for one reason or the other, 
only to have the thing come crashing down and then you look like an idiot. So let's say I was convinced about Jay-Z for some time and then it was a matter of convincing others. And I, you know, I think that there's a level of, let's say, risk aversion, right? Especially to people in the entertainment business from the folks who, who edit these things because, you know, entertainment business is a kind of a, a volatile place, right? But Jay-Z is, is an exception. I mean, Jay-Z is, is like, He's that guy who's going to just keep growing and finding ways. That line that he says, put me anywhere on God's green earth, uh, I'll triple my worth. And to me, like, I think when I first heard that, he was probably worth $400 million. And here he is, tripled his worth. So, and then some. I mean, uh, I haven't done the latest number yet, but, you know, I anticipate there's going to be a lot of work to be done and you know, proof of work to be shown following Jay-Z as he continues his climb, because I don't think he's stopping anytime soon. Yeah, especially after the moves that he's made since you put that out. I mean, there's been the Ace of Spades deal and the title deal. So all of that, I'm sure, and that's just part of it, right? There's this Tiffany's deal. There's so many things that he's continued to do since then. Yeah, you know, in, in a funny way, it's like, he's like that person in your fantasy baseball or football league who's like always making these trades and they may not all make sense in a vacuum, but actually, you know, if you kind of put them all together, they're always building towards something else. You know, they're always building toward that next big deal. And I kind of think that, you know, what we're seeing now with the big payouts he's gotten for title and uh, Armand de Brignac, these have all kind of come that the timing is kind of fascinating to me, right? Like I think that he's preparing something else that's pretty big and, um, I've always thought that a big thing that he would like to do down the line is to own not just a token piece, but like a significant and ideally a majority share of an NFL football team. And these are multi-billion dollar entities. So, you know, you have to be pretty wealthy to be able to do it. You have to be able to, you know, take out some cash, but there are restrictions on, you know, how much it's like joining a, a co-op or something. You know, if you're buying in, it's not just that you're approved for, 20% down for whatever mortgage, like they may have a, a requirement that you have to put down 50% or pay all cash or whatever. So I do see him building towards something. And I, I kind of think that his next step is a professional sports team and, and not just in the way that he had a piece of the nets back in the day. Yeah, that's a good point. Cause I think that's the distinction. I think it was 0.15% or a 15th of a percent. It was some decimal point of what he owned. And I remember the rumors started to come out about him wanting NFL team ownership right around the time that he had made the deal with um, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell for Rock Nation's partnership for NFL's entertainment and the Super Bowl halftime show and all of that. So yeah, I'm with you. I think that'll eventually come for sure. And I think some of the things that he's been doing as well, it seems like him and Jack Dorsey are stepping more into crypto. And I feel like even him turning his social media avatar into a crypto punk, like he's clearly trying to lay some groundwork for all of these things. And yeah, I mean, at that point, it's like, those are the things that you would naturally expect him to do. But yeah, I do think that of all those things, you know, the NFL team ownership is definitely the big one. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, who knows? I mean, maybe he tries to buy the Nets back outright. Maybe he tries to get in on a, on a baseball team. But I do think with Jay-Z, you know, like, first of all, Jerry Jones isn't selling the Dallas Cowboys, you know, and the Steinbrenners aren't selling the Yankees. But Jay-Z, is, you know, he's not the one to kind of go after and, and have the, the sort of, like, 
primo a number one brand he wants to go to the rival and build them up or he wants to start his own thing so that's kind of the way you know, that's what he did with the nets right he didn't do what he did with the nets with the knicks because they were already kind of fully uh realizing the power of their brand but he saw an opportunity to turn the nets into into something cool uh and to be a part of the move to brooklyn and i think that's what he would probably try to do in the sports team too yeah definitely for sure well let's shift gears a bit i want to talk more about you and some of the moves you've made specifically because i think a lot of this does relate we're talking so much about how entertainers are doing multiple things how they've shifted their model over time and it's been interesting to see how you as a journalist and as a writer and someone that's now doing their own thing has done that because i think over the past two to three years we've seen a number of big name journalists like yourself that have moved off of the brands and companies and the publishers that they've been with for years. And they're like, you know what? I want to branch out and do my own thing. I want to launch my own. And a lot of them have gone on to Substack, which you have, but I think you're doing it in an even more unique and interesting way because you've written several books. And this time, instead of releasing a book with the traditional publisher, you are releasing your next book, We Are All Musicians, through Substack. And that is essentially the publishing outlet that you're using for that. And I think that's a really interesting model. And it would be great to hear what that decision was like to leave Forbes and then work with um, Substack now, working more independently on your own thing and what it's been like. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, there was an intermediate stop there that sort of didn't happen, but was crucial to this whole process for me. And so, you know, I mean, like I said, my career at Forbes was old enough to drive and I felt like it was time to, to try something different. And I mean, honestly, like, like seeing the hip hop thing through from the very beginning of the serious coverage of hip hop in, you know, the business media world to Jay-Z becoming a billionaire, you know, Kanye on the cover. Like I felt like I had sort of like accomplished my mission. Like I had followed this movement, this kind of like ground shaking cultural institution, right. To this pinnacle. And I didn't really know what more there was to be done at Forbes. And so I got this great offer from uh, shall we say a rival publication and with all kinds of great promises and really an emphasis on the writing, which is my favorite part of the job to be really almost exclusively doing long form features. And so I, I said my goodbyes at Forbes. I took a few weeks off. I signed this offer letter to leave. And then a few days before I was supposed to start, I got this, this basically an IP grab, this like 50 page document that sort of seemed to want to own a hundred percent of all of my everything. And for me, I, I do a lot of stuff outside of the day job, including books and some TV and film stuff that I'm I'm starting to dabble in. That wasn't kind of part of my, uh, how I had conceptualized this next step. And, you know, it was all, all news to me. So I brought in my book agent and he tried to kind of bring us to some kind of agreement, but basically the other side wouldn't really budge. So I, I walked away. Uh, I walked away and I wanted to, I think after that experience, what I realized is that, you know, a lot of these, newspapers and magazines are starting to see the appeal of the possibility of getting a piece of a, of a Hulu series or, or Netflix or whatever. And I think even more insidiously, some of them want pieces of your books, not for the sake of it being your book, but because there's a sort of backdoor, if 
yeah, maybe they, they have the rights to produce your articles to option them and turn them into TV or movies. But if you write a book about one of your articles and they don't have that right too, you could go then option the book and turn that into something um, and kind of get around it that way. So, you know, you're seeing some publications are now calling for reporters to have to get permission to even talk to a book editor or a literary agent, which I think is just bonkers. And um, anyway, how could I really follow these guys, you know, Jay-Z and Puff and Dre through their entire careers and then go and like give away all, all of my ownership of my own intellectual property. It just, it would be so hypocritical and like just feeling wrong, like feeling, I, I don't know. I, I, it doesn't really feel right to me to be doing that. So I basically cold emailed the founder of Substack and I told him my experience. And I said, look, I've, I'm about to start shopping this book. Uh, we are all musicians now. And, but I'd be interested in serializing it on Substack, you know, Charles Dickens style week by week, you get a different chunk and that's for the paid subscribers. And then for the free subscribers, I would do the Zog blog. I would do basically what I was doing at Forbes, intersection of music, media, and money. And, you know, within a week, because startups move fast, you know, we'd come to an agreement and they definitely, they made it worth my while to come over and gave me a grant as they've done with some writers. But, you know, at the end of the day, the model doesn't work if people don't sign up. And so that's on me. And that's now, you know, in addition to writing and creating really compelling work, I have to go out and do the audience development. And there's no safety net for that. There's no somebody else's responsibility. It's, uh, as you know, it's, it's all on me now. And that, and that's a whole different side of the brain from um, creating. And it's a side of the brain that I, I like to use too. So it's been a, a really fascinating journey. And so I'm, I've only been doing the Substack thing now for a couple of months, but you know, I'm doing the weekly blog posts and then I'm rolling out the, this book and I just love the rhythm of it. I love the idea of being my own boss. I love the creativity, the freedom of voice. You know, I'm not trying to have to adapt my voice to be some publication's voice. It just gets to be me and I get to say what I want. So, you know, it's super freeing. And then at the end of the day, knowing that, that I own my work, I can sleep easier at night. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like that voice piece is important because I'm sure with so much of what you did, you had your version that you would put out and things had to be adjusted to fit the Forbes format, whatever that was. Let's take a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsor. Let's talk a bit more about today's sponsor, Mighty Networks. As a content creator myself, I know firsthand how many tools are required to run a business like this. And managing all those tools can be time consuming and it can take you away from the work that you do best. And that's exactly why Mighty Networks was started. Not only can you bring everything together on one platform, but your community is at the center of it all. That means you have your own network effect and your Mighty Network becomes more valuable with each new member who joins. You could offer them your content, courses, events, and more all in one place without integrating with other tools. You can customize your branding, track analytics, and spend more time on what you do best. You'll join successful creators like Lovey Ajay Jones, Wall Street Trapper, and many more who have built their own mighty network. Don't waste time navigating numerous platforms. Join the creators who have unlocked something new with their Mighty Network. Mighty Networks is offering a 14-day free trial to new users. Learn more at MightyNetworks.com. How different is the Forbes voice versus your voice? Yeah, you know, it's different. I mean, I think that one of the things that Forbes does that I do appreciate is that they do leave room for some first person in there. There's like 
I wouldn't call Forbes a gonzo journalism publication by any stretch, but it's certainly more gonzo than The Economist or The Wall Street Journal. And there isn't really like a gonzo business publication, right? Maybe that should be my next project. But uh, <laughs> I do think that given that the world that we live in now, when you can be in somebody's living room by going through a phone that you open with your face, you know, I mean, it, there's really no excuse for writing that is like stodgy and impersonal. Like you really have to put the reader there with your words if you want to compete with the actual visual, the audio visual being right there with, with whatever you're wanting to know about. So that's kind of my style. And yeah, I mean, I would say that ideally my style, my style in its most ideal form is more gonzo, but you know, of course you have to be with whoever you're writing about in order to have that kind of gonzo experience. And that's harder in a pandemic era. And it's also harder when you're writing about people like Jay-Z who don't really want to talk to anybody anymore because they can just put everything out to social or in Jay-Z's case, not put things out on social and, uh, you know, create that kind of scarcity. So I think that just having the freedom though to play around a little bit more with the voice and the style is, is something that I'm, I'm really, really, really enjoying. I see that. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that this book will be a great example of that too. Can you talk a little bit more about We Are All Musicians Now and where the thought came behind the book and what are the key themes that you want to get across? Yeah, the thought really, I like to say musicians borrow, right? And the, the title is borrowed with permission from one of my best friends, uh, a guy named John Bittner, who's the CEO of a, of a company that I actually invested in really early on. It's called Splitwise. And he said, he read my Jay-Z book many years ago and he said, now I get it. We are all musicians now. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, we're really like, everybody is trying to make sense of how to sell things in an era where everything is kind of available for free all the time on the internet. And how you do that pretty much for anybody comes down to the same tool set, toolkit, that musicians have to use, you know, in the post Napster world. But I guess the point of the book is, you know, and then so I started sort of started thinking about that. And I was like, yeah, we are all musicians now. And so how far back does it really go? Well, you know, I think things started to change certainly in like the middle of the 20th century for musicians. I mean, they were, that was when they were really getting taken advantage of, but maybe by the seventies, eighties, trying to fight to get their masters back, right. The master recordings their publishing rights. You know, you had great stories of the intrigue between Michael Jackson and Walter Yetnikoff and that, you know, how he was going to use some big um, blow up that, that Walter had on him as an excuse to sort of like get his master. I mean, there, there's this whole, I actually wrote one of my uh, Zog blog posts, or sorry, it was a, a part of we, We're All Missions Now. There's a great story how Walter Yetnikoff, who was the head of CBS Records at the time, which Michael was on, he really offended Michael because he sued this rival record company that had put out the soundtrack storybook album to, that had gone along with ET, which Michael had worked on because they had put it out while they were trying to promote thriller and all this stuff. And Michael was very offended by this. And so basically in order to win back, let's say Walter wanted to find a way to win back Michael's favor. And so Michael's lawyers had given back his masters and he did. So stuff like that. I mean, you saw, you saw artists being able to pull off things like that starting in the 70s, 80s, in rare cases. But now moving to a point where having split ownership of masters and publishing and all of that is, you know, is more standard. It's not just like, hey, we're giving you an advance and we're going to own all of your everything. But here we are, you know, in, in the media industry and journalism. And if you write something for somebody, if you're on staff, they own it 100%. And maybe that's right. 
maybe it's not. I mean, I personally think that some kind of split ownership should be the default like it is in music. And certainly for freelancers, I think freelancers should absolutely own everything. And I think staffers should have a, have a stake in their, in their stuff too. But, but, you know, I think there's so many other applications, right? Like if you look at the death of physical retail, where did it begin? Tower records. And that happened way before, you know, you started to see all these other businesses shutting down the bricks and mortar stores and, you know, and going online. If you look at the rise of streaming, Spotify hit way before Netflix became thoroughly mainstream. And even now with NFTs, I mean, you know, I always like to talk about how the Wu-Tang album was the first ever NFT, even though they didn't call it that. And that was seven years ago. So there are all these applications and it's like, if you follow the musicians, you can kind of tell the future. Yeah, definitely. And that last example there also makes me think about some of the issues and lawsuits that Hollywood actors have been having. Scarlett Johansson is suing Disney because of what she feels is a breach of contract with Black Widow being on Disney+. And that reminds me of the arguments that Taylor Swift had had about Spotify and not wanting her music on Spotify for years. And it even dates back to some of Metallica's issues with Napster from two decades ago. So I think that tracks as well. And I think another example, you had mentioned this in your writing when you were talking about the book is just even the concept of the iPod. Everything that we're now doing from a mobile technology perspective, that was a music product and that paved the way for what people are now doing with video, what people are now doing with all of these other things. Exactly. I mean, it was a music player, like that thing that you have you know, in your hand, that was a music player before it was a phone. And it, it became so clear that if you could just have all of that stuff that was on there and turn it into a phone, you know, you have a multi-billion dollar, I mean, you could call it a trillion dollar idea. What's Apple's market cap now it must be over a trillion. So yeah, I mean, again, all goes back to music. No, definitely. Definitely. And it's been good too. And it's been really, I mean, fascinating to read a lot of your writing. I'd read the most recent book you'd put out as well, A-List Angels. And I think in some ways that's almost the opposite type of trend where something that tech and those folks have been doing for years, investing in backing startups and companies, we started to see more athletes, more entertainers, and more hip hop artists as well getting involved in that landscape. And you put the book out early in 2020, but I feel even since you put the book out, there's been so much more that we've even seen, especially in the pandemic from an investing perspective. So be curious also to hear your thoughts overall on that book, but then how you think your views may have changed at all since writing that book and what we've seen happen in the pandemic. Yeah, no, I mean, I kind of wish that as I was writing that book, I was like, I got to get it out before somebody else writes this book. You know, I don't want it to be late. I don't want the bubble to burst, whatever. But in, I think in some ways, I, I wish I'd put it out, you know, a year later because I could have gotten a lot more stuff in there. And, you know, a few months after the book came out, I think the book talks about how the likes of Shaq and Nas and Ashton Kutcher and JLo and so forth uh, were able to invest in startups either with their own cash or, you know, advisory shares. And to really kind of like diversify and, and to and to break into this what had been this very exclusive, you know, like let's call it what it is, old white club and you know, old white men. And suddenly you have all of these entertainers coming from all kinds of different backgrounds and being able to get into these very exclusive startups and venture funds and put in amounts of money that are much smaller than the minimums, let's say, for you know, for, for most uh, institutions or that would usually be doing this kind of uh, investing. So there's sort of like a democratizing of Silicon Valley that, that has happened 
you know, of course it's still very hard to get in if you're not rich, but at least, you know, there's a way for different kinds of rich people to get in. So anyway, I wrote this book and, you know, it comes out of course in the, in the very beginning in the darkest days of the pandemic and nobody wants to read about stars investing in startups and, um, had to cancel the book tour and all that that i mean it look if if that's the worst thing that happened to me in the pandemic i'm one of the very lucky ones so it's been kind of cool to see that there's a long tail to it and to see that some of the things that i had wrote about were kind of coming to greater fruition even after it came out so i think the way that the clubhouse deal went down you know and the idea that you had kevin hart in there and you know he was somebody who was in the orbit of andreessen horowitz and kind of helped convince the founders to go with them and you know that that whole story and you know there are a lot of examples like you know clubhouse maybe you know isn't quite where it was mid-pandemic but you know the fact is that it was a it's become this huge sort of cultural thing that it might not have if it wasn't for that kind of celebrity involvement and i think that just goes to show the power that entertainers can have when attaching themselves to a brand and it's not just like for the mass market it's not just for sort of like tweeting about whatever product to get users to come along. It's about impressing founders and like getting somebody to come in and, and be a part of it. So there, there are just so many ways that celebrity investors have proven to be really valuable to, to startups, I think. And then we see the evolution of a firm like Andreessen Horowitz to be this sort of like social and economic kind of flywheel community where there are all these characters who are in the orbit that can kind of feed on each other in, in, in order to create more value. And I think it's it's a, a pretty incredible model. And the book deals, you know, a lot with Andreessen Horowitz and that kind of syndicate that's built around around some of those investors who you see jumping into stuff together. So it's been really kind of validating to see some of the some of the theories and observations borne out in, in the, the time since the book's been released. Yeah. I hear you, especially on the part about you feel like maybe the book was a little bit ahead of its time. And I know that's something that people have often said about, especially things that are like cultural trends. And a lot of these things are easier to see when we're in hindsight. But still, I think that it's almost better to have something like that out there because it does help some of the content age well. I mean, you had a whole chapter in there dedicated to Nas. And I think a lot of people knew how prolific Nas was, but his exposure, what people realize, especially after the Coinbase and the Robinhood deals earlier this year, has gone to a whole nother level. And you have the reference point for that, right? That's right. And you're seeing, you know, Nas's exits from a lot of the companies that I talked about. And I interviewed Nas and, you know, that's all in there. And there's some of his insight about why he invested in certain companies. You know, I talked to his manager, Anthony Sala, who told me this great story about how they were going to invest in Casper or rather the opportunity to invest in Casper came along to Anthony and he was like, the mattresses, why, why do I care? And Nas was like, wait a minute. No, I grew up in New York. This mattress comes in a box. Like you can just take it up the stairs and it pops out in your apartment, like a caterpillar, you know, I mean, that's amazing. And so they're like, all right, sure. Why not? And, you know, <laughs> and now we're seeing the, you know, the sort of the fruits of that labor. But I do think that, you know, your Coinbase, I mean, that, that was another story that was in there in terms of, you know, Nas being a really useful part of the, of the team. But I think that entertainers and specifically musicians, they bring a certain je ne sais quoi to the table. And it's like, there's that instinct. There's that, like, what's hot or what's going to work or like what people want. You have to be able to deliver that as a musician. And you also have to be able to deliver that as an entrepreneur, as a, as a you know, VC or a company. 
Yeah, definitely. I think that it's always really cool to hear the stories about what made certain celebrities or entertainers decide to invest in things. That Nas Casper in a box story is great. I also think this is another one you may have mentioned, but I think it was Shaq that had invested in Google because he had heard some people talking about it on an elevator, and that just gave him this hunch that it was this thing. Oh, yeah. no, it was, That's hilarious. Looking back. It was even better. It was like he was playing like with somebody's kid at a, at like a restaurant, they came up, maybe they wanted his autograph or something. And, you know, he was just nice to this kid. And, and so the kid's parent came over and was basically like, Hey, do you want to invest in pre IPO Google? <laughs> like Shaq was like, Oh yeah. I mean, and maybe he'd also heard of somebody talking about it in an elevator. So he was like, yeah, sure. That sounds cool. You know, and I ran it by his team and got in and did incredibly well. And like, Shaq won't share the, the numbers. I did push him on it, but he was sort of like, my mom says that it's not polite to talk about money. And so, you know, what are you going to tell Shaq? But yeah, all right, <laughs> I guess we're not going to talk about money, but no, I mean, the thing about somebody like Shaq is, and this is one of my favorite stories from A-List Angels. I interviewed the founder of Ring, the doorbell slash video doorbell security startup now purchased by Amazon. I think it's for a billion dollars. And the founder's name is Jamie. And he's, he was telling me how he brought Shaq on as an investor. I think for some of the reasons that people usually bring celebrities on brand awareness, uh, especially consumer facing stuff, it can come in really handy. But he had a meeting with Shaq and, and he was saying how Jamie, the founder, really wanted to get in touch with more law enforcement officials to really be able to sell Ring as this sort of law enforcement approved home security measure. And Shaq is like, Maybe it seems like he's not paying attention or something. And then he hands Jamie the phone and it's the Miami police chief who Shaq knew from some TV show he'd done down there and uh, made that connection. As it turned out, you know, Shaq had studied to be um, trained to be a, a sheriff's deputy or something like that, some kind of law enforcement official. And so he had all these connections that he was able to hook up with Ring, which made a huge difference. And that's sort of like not what you would think a celebrity would bring like that's not kind of the value that you would usually associate but they all often have these connections and then there's also this thing of like if Shaq is calling you and you've never met Shaq you're going to pick up the phone because of Shaq you're like oh that's interesting I'm a founder and I'll pick up this phone or I'm a somebody who another founder wants to do business with I probably wouldn't pick up the phone for this unknown founder but if it's Shaq like why not? Yeah, that's interesting. I'll, I'll do it. So, you know, I think there's a lot of paths to value for these characters when they come in to be part of a company. That's a great story. I'm glad you shared that because I know that people, you know, may have heard the Google thing, but I don't know if they knew it to the depths. And obviously you have the insights there. So no, I, I appreciate you sharing that. Definitely. All right. Before we let you go, I want to do a quick fire round of some predictions of who we think will be the next hip hop or entertainers to be named on that billionaire status. And well, I'll leave it open there. I mean, I have some thoughts, but I'm curious. Who are the names that come to mind? Who do you think is going to get there next? Well, uh, you know, I was thinking about this a lot, and I do kind of have my billionaire radar always up. And, you know, unfortunately, my pick would have been Rihanna, but Forbes just called her not only a billionaire, I think $1.7 was the number. So there goes that prediction. But I do think Diddy's going to get there. And, and that's maybe a more boring prediction because it's been such a a big story and he's like very open about it but you know he's kind of stuck in the seven eight hundred million dollar range i'd love to be stuck in the seven eight hundred million dollar range personally but um, 
Why do you think he's stuck there? Do you think it's like like Ciroc has just, you know, reached kind of where it's at or there hasn't been any like big yeah. major business moves there? I mean, I think Ciroc is still a very healthy brand, but it's I think it's already gotten to be the is it number one or number two? It's maybe it's like number two. It's tied with kettle one for number two, something like that. I don't know. It's it's up there, but it's like, you know, there's not much further up to go. So but you know, you never know with him. And I think that's the thing is like it felt like his career, like how many times has it felt like his career was stalled? I mean, uh, in the mid aughts, it felt like his career was stalled maybe. And, you know, and then he reinvented himself, you know, really in large part with Ciroc. So I never count him out. And I think that he's always working on whatever the next big thing is. But many years ago, I was talking to somebody about, it was an industry insider who, who knew all these figures and, and, um, like these individuals. And he, and I said, who do you think would be the next, billionaire and he said i don't know but he said it probably somebody's going to come out of left field somebody who's really brilliant and just has some great idea and then and then it just catches on and, and becomes this huge thing and so that was kanye that was Yeezy. i mean and who would have known you know in the days of the red octobers when you could get them for a couple hundred bucks or something my god <laughs> i wish i picked up a couple pairs but how would you know that Yeezy was going to be this billion dollar business i mean it's just if you know, if you have uh, an idea or, or a design or something that just so resonates with people, it can scale really quickly. And um, so, I, you know, I would think more toward like who is the most creative person kind of coming out of the music world and particularly hip hop. Somebody like Travis Scott, I think, would be a good guess because you could see Cactus Jack maybe following the Yeezy kind of path and that could very quickly escalate into a valuation that would put him, you know, at that level. Yeah, I'm glad you said him because that was the person that was on my mind because I think the distinction you made is important too because I think I look at Diddy almost similarly, you know, the way I may look at someone like a Master P, right? Both very successful, both well into those, you know, nine-figure net worth status. The difference though is that they are leading mostly either A, mature businesses or businesses that have, you know, much lower uh, multiples that they're involved in still healthy businesses, still very successful, but that's different than, you know, someone like a Rihanna starting some like Fenty beauty and all the Fenty brands that skyrockets. The product sales are just skyrocket from that. Adidas and what Kanye has done with them and easy skyrocket. And I think you look at someone like Travis Scott, I think the number that I saw out there last year for 2020 was that he had made over a hundred million dollars from all the product sales endorsements. And most of that is him licensing those and his name and his likeness to other companies. What does the Travis Scott product that he puts his backing behind that gets all these ragers supporting it 100%? Yeah, that's what it is. Because I think we've seen it. Product sales is, for the most part, what drives people to that next level. And so I do think he's a he's probably one of the better people to, to bet on there. Yeah. And, and I think when you, when you look at how net worth is calculated, it's really, if you own a percentage of a company that is worth in the billions, that's the fastest path to it. Because if you're somebody who goes out and tours like crazy and sells out arenas and so forth, I mean, that's a great way to make a lot of money. But even if you're, let's say you're, you're doing arenas and you're grossing like a million dollars a night, well, Maybe you're only taking home three or four hundred k out of that, and then you have to take into account your travel expenses and whoever else is coming along. And so maybe you're you're looking at more like two hundred thousand dollars a night. And then there's you know you write all that off, but then you still have to pay taxes. You probably live in California, so that's like a hundred thousand dollars a night. And then like 
that's not even counting the, the personal expenses. And so if you do, even if you're doing 50 or a hundred shows a year, I mean, you still, it's great money, but it does get eaten into there. There are a lot of managers fees and lawyers and all that. It does get whittled down and then, you know, and then you have to find a way to keep it and grow it. But if you found a company or you invest in a company that, that has really taken off like a rocket ship, all that value is just, is right there. And I think actually because of the way the numbers are calculated by Forbes and, you know, how I would calculate them independently, it does look better before you sell, right? And maybe that, maybe this shouldn't be done this way, but let's say you found a company, it has a, a $1 billion valuation and you own it outright 100%. I know that never really happens, but let's just say then you would be worth a billion dollars. But yeah, I mean, you're not really because if you sold it for a billion dollars, then you would have to pay all the taxes and you would have to do this and that. And then you would have, you know, whatever, half, two thirds of that number. So the method of calculation does advantage people who are invested in startups or have founded companies that have not sold yet. And, you know, and, and then there's sort of like Uncle Sam takes his cut and then, and then you get a lower number. So based on the way things are calculated, especially I think somebody like Travis Scott, who could have a, a company, a product line that, that has a certain valuation and not necessarily be selling it, you know, you can get to that number. Of course, like a lot of times we don't even find out how valuable something was until somebody sells it. So that's, that's the flip side. Yeah, definitely. Well said, man. Well said. Well, Zach, man, this is a pleasure. Thanks again for coming on. And before we do let you go now, you just give one more plug. Where can people find your work? Where can people find We Are All Musicians now? Yeah, you can find it on Substack. The friendly URL is zogblog.co. And yeah, hope you'll check it out. Thanks for having me on. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Trapalo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.